been one of those weeks where I have felt God stirring something in my heart. And once you've done this for a while, you realize, don't ignore that, <laughs> because nothing else will fly. There are times that you're in a, in a series in preaching, and possibly the easier thing to do would be just to continue with what you've been doing, dive into the books and, and meditate and chew, but you just know God's poking around in your heart and saying something different. And uh, it's been a wrestling match this this last uh, day or two just trying to figure out exactly what to do here but i do believe that god is speaking uh that you're not you're not going to get just sort of taught this morning or encouraged i, I do believe god is speaking so second kings this just was in my reading plan last week which means it probably was in my reading plan about 6 weeks ago but i'm only getting caught up uh in the last week or two Second Kings 19, it's also in Isaiah, around about the late 30s of Isaiah, this story of Hezekiah, who is the king uh, in Judah, in Jerusalem. And the background is that a nasty fella called Sennacherib has showed up with about 185,000 men, and he has laid siege on the city of Jerusalem. Nobody's getting in, nobody's getting out. Uh, they are locked down effectively. That's not what drew me to the passage, but they are in a state where they can't go anywhere, they can't do anything, they just have to stay put. If they tried to leave the city, they would die. And Hezekiah receives a threatening letter from some messengers, and he brings it into the temple in Jerusalem, and he lays it out before God. This is good practice when you get a threatening letter. <laughs> Um, now, every bill is not a threatening letter, by the way. Don't do this just with every sort of weekly bill or whatever. But he gets a threatening letter and he brings it into the temple and he sets it down before God. And I can remember a, a friend of ours, a guy from, from Belfast, Pastor Erwin Ray, and he used, to, he used to tell me how he would do this whenever he got a nasty letter from someone. He would go in to the presence of God and he would set it down the table and say, Father, are you going to let them do that to me? And Hezekiah goes in and he puts this letter down in front of God and he prays for deliverance. And then Isaiah the prophet comes and Isaiah gives Hezekiah a message. And there's just three verses towards the end of 2 Kings 19 that I want to read. And then in a very haphazard, messed up way, try to pull a few thoughts out of 2 Kings 19 and verse 29. God is speaking through Hezekiah. He says, this will be the sign for you, O Hezekiah. Okay, so this is the sign that God's going to deliver, that God's going to work in this situation and deliver his people. This will be the sign for you, O Hezekiah. This year, you will eat what grows by itself. And the second year, you'll eat what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. That's your memory verse. Okay. Once more, as in this happens all the time throughout history, this is something that God does. In some Bible translations, it says, yet again, 
a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. I want to be in that band. Do you ever want to be in a band when you're a kid? Well, that's, there's a good band to be in. A band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. All right. Now, Hezekiah is given a sign, and the sign is a sort of an agricultural sign about where they're going to get their food from. And God says to him, do you know what, Hezekiah? This year, all you're going to be able to eat is whatever has seeded itself in the fields. You go out and you'll be able to, to, to lift some stuff that has just seeded and grown by itself, and you can be able to eat that in, in, for, for this year. And in the second year, you're not going to be out there in time to get your seeds sown for the next year. So what you're going to eat in the second year will be what has sprung up from the previous year's leftovers. But he says the third year, things will change. He says in the third year, you're going to get back to your normal agricultural patterns. You're going to sow and you're going to reap or harvest You're going to plant vineyards and you're going to eat their fruit. In other words, there's going to be a period of time when things for Hezekiah and the people are going to be a bit lean. They're not going to be able to to work in their normal rhythm, in their normal pattern. There will be no large-scale harvesting. There will be no sowing. But it's for a season. That leanness is for a season and it will pass and there will be a return to the ability to sow and to harvest. But for these couple of years, Hezekiah, you're not going to be in your normal routine or your normal way of doing things. On a side note, I wonder, is there a significance to the three, the third year? In the third year, on the third day is when the change comes and new life springs forth again. And then what, what God does is he takes that agricultural picture, which is a reality for the people, and says, here's where you're going to get your food. This is what's going to look like. It's going to be lean for a period of time. And then there will be a return to normal behavior. God then applies that to the people themselves and says that there's going to be a remnant, a remnant. That's the word that's just been beating me about the place this last day or two. A remnant of the house of Judah. They will bear roots below and they will bear fruit above. So what is a remnant? Um, it was defined in, a, in an anchor Bible dictionary as what is left of a community after it undergoes a catastrophe. So the remnant was the faithful people that remained. The word literally comes or is connected with the word to remain, to stay, to stand, to be faithful, to remain. After the hurricane has passed by, after the plague has gone, after the invading army have been defeated or have retreated, the remnant is those who stayed faithful and stood their ground. That's what the word remnant means. And the people of God are referred to as a remnant. This is a a common picture uh, throughout the Bible, this idea that God works with a small group of people 
to bring renewal and change to the larger society. Now, this is really important because our larger society is pretty corrupt. And God works with a small group, a remnant of faithful people, and he uses them to bring renewal and then revival to the larger group. But that remnant is the key where it starts. When you read through your Old Testament stories of when God moves through his people and brings change, he always starts with a very small number. Maybe just one. Maybe just a couple. Maybe just a small group. Abraham, Noah's family, Joseph, Israel themselves, a small, nothing nation on the face of the earth. Just an insignificant little group of people hated by their neighbors around them, hemmed in on every side. And yet God would choose to use that people of all the earth in order to bring renewal and in order to work through humanity. And even when Israel, whenever the nation as a whole begins to go astray and fall into sin, there is always within the nation a remnant. There is always a faithful people. Elijah got frustrated and got depressed and, and, and got wore out battling Jezebel. And Elijah went and hid in a cave and he said, I'm the only one left. And God said, no. He said, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Of 7,000 who have not compromised, I have a remnant of faithful people. You're not the only one. God always has a remnant. When you get to the, the Gospels, the start of the Gospel of Luke, which was roughly this time last year for us, believe it or not, in the Gospel of Luke, you meet Simeon and you meet Anna. Those are remnant people. They are faithful their whole lives they have sought after God and they have waited for God to deliver and to bring his promises to pass. Even though the nation around them has shot, they still are a faithful remnant. The word Judah literally means praise. I like that. Where will a remnant come from? Where will this faithful people be birthed and be established? They will be birthed and established in a house of praise. Don't let anyone ever tell you that praise is a waste of time or it's just something you do at the start to get warmed up or at the end to respond. No, praise is not just a wee thing that we do. Something, you know, you'll get people who criticize singing churches, churches that love to sing, and they'll say that, oh, it's just a wee emotional thing that you do to make yourselves feel good. It's not. It is not. And it is out of the house of praise that this remnant, this faithful core, will stand. Once the catastrophe has passed, once the invading army has gone, there will be a faithful people. And ultimately, the remnant is Jesus himself. If you just focus it all on to him, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the remnant. He is the one in Judah who came forth and was faithful and showed us the true, what it meant to be a true son of God. Now, as I've thought about this this last day or two, this is, this is uh, tied in with things that I've been thinking about for the past three or four weeks, things that have been prayed here on a Sunday morning and on a Tuesday night, things that have been spoken to me by friends who are prophetic 
And I really do believe God is, is speaking and, he, and he's painting a picture here. I've written there that the remnant are the seeds of renewal. And the reason I've said that the remnant are the seeds of renewal is because you've got this agricultural thing going on where the remnant is spoken of as taking root below and bearing fruit above. That all starts with the seed. And the seed, the remnant, is the seed by which the whole society will be renewed. Throughout history, every time that renewal has taken place, as I said earlier, it is with one or two people who read their Bibles, who pray, and who say, why can this not happen now? Why can this not happen again? Or who read history about the John Wesleys and the Spurgeons and the, the, the Reformers and the, the great people who rose up and refused to accept the compromise in the church and the poison in society. And they said, why not now? Why can God not move now and do it again? It's always that faithful little group. And they are spoken of here, I believe, as a seat stuck into the ground, taking root below, bearing fruit above. One of those communities or one of those remnants that we see in the Bible is in Acts chapter 2. And even though the, the religious hierarchy in Jerusalem have crucified Jesus, there is this group of people who are devoted to him, having seen him, resurrected and listening to his teaching about the kingdom. There's this group that are devoted. A remnant is a devoted people, right? And I want to challenge you today. And Don't just sit and listen to me. Every single one of you and me <laughs> throughout this, I want you to hear a question just ringing in your ears the whole time. Are you part of the remnant or not? Are you part of the remnant or not? We'll see other groups you can be a part of a little bit later. But are you part of a remnant at this time that God is working on now and will bring forth in the future? This remnant were devoted in Acts chapter 2. Devoted to the teaching of the word of God. Devoted to fellowship one another. You can still do that. <laughs> You're limited in how it happens, but you can still do it. Okay, it might only be two households in a back garden or whatever. I get so confused because so many things change. But you can still do it. You can do it over a screen. You can do it whatever, but you can still do it. The remnant are devoted to fellowship. The remnant are devoted to fellowship. If we go from one week to the next with no contact with each other, whether that's just a phone call to say, what about you, you're on my mind, or whether it's a cup of coffee at a fire pit, if we go a week without connecting, we're not remnant people. Because remnant people connect. They're devoted to one another. They make time for it. And they're also devoted to the breaking of bread, eating meals together, not just communion, but eating together. Again, limited in that. And to prayer. We'll say more about prayer a little bit later. So I want to think about these, these seeds then. Where does a seed go? It goes in the ground. I've, it's just been a picture. I've had this going over my mind for, for several weeks now. Just this picture of a seed under the ground. You never can see it. <laughs> you know? Um, I don't know if, if scientists and botanists and horticulturists have the technology to actually some, to, to make a video of what's going on under the ground. I'm sure they probably do. But it's in the dark. It's in the dark. 
and it's in the cold, wet ground. It is in an uncomfortable place. Right now, we're in a slightly uncomfortable place. In the big picture of history and how the church has been treated over the last 2,000 years across the world, it's not actually that uncomfortable. But it's a little bit uncomfortable for us from where we want to be. The seed is thrust down into the dark, cold, wet ground and left there for a long time. Remember, this seed is the remnant, right? This seed is the remnant that's going to take root below and is going to bear fruit above. And it looks like nothing's happening. You put that seed in the ground and it looks like nothing is going on there at all. But within that seed, there is sheer magic going on. There is life. There is power. There is transformation taking place. There is growth. There is energy. In the dark, in the cold, in the wet, there are sheer miracles going on under the ground as you walk about on the top of it (laughs) all the time. There's a faithful remnant seed developing in the darkness. And what will happen is once the darkness passes, once the winter has gone and the spring comes, the work will have been done under the ground that means something can then take place above the ground. And that's probably, we'll lean into that more a little bit probably over the next week or so. But in the dark, in the cold, what are the remnant doing during the winter? And I, and I need to say this now, it's almost, and, and I, please don't misunderstand me, but it's almost like we've got a second chance as a, you know, at, at lockdown because we didn't maybe take it seriously enough the first time. What will we do with the few months that we have ahead of us where God says, under the ground you go? Under the ground you go. There will be no sowing and reaping. Are very limited sowing and reaping. Under the ground you go, seed. What's going to happen when you are under the ground? What is the remnant going to be up to in the darkness? One of the things is prayer. Predictable, isn't it? But absolutely non-negotiable. If we want to be a remnant people uh, who, who will emerge from the ground... When the darkness and the winter has passed, then we must be a people of prayer. We must. We must. If you want to be in the remnant, you will be a person of prayer. If you want the next six months darkness to pass, and then at the other end of it, you're just sort of flopping around doing nothing, that that will be because you've been prayerless. (laughs) The remnant will be found praying. In the dark, in the wet, in the cold. Jesus talked about the closet, the secret place. Shutting yourself away where nobody sees you except your Father. And your Father rewards those who are shut away in the secret place. And not only being shut away, but also effectively corporately all getting into the closet together. To cry out to God together. And that must happen, church. It must happen. It has got to happen in the next few months. It just, it must happen. <laughs> there has to be a crying, a corporate crying out to God if we are a remnant people. And if there's going to be anything at the other side of this that anyone will look at and say, that's good. There has to be a corporate crying out to God. This verse 
really hit me during the week. I shared it with some of the, the guys earlier in the week. Um, I was reading Colossians and I just now and again you have these moments when you're reading the Bible. Every time you read the Bible, God is speaking to you. Every single time you open it and read it, He is speaking. Always. But there are sometimes just these moments. I wish they happened every day. For me, they don't. But there are these moments where you just feel the Holy Spirit saying, Stop. <laughs> read that again. Just just stop. Don't rush on. Read it a third time. Think about it. And it happened the other day when I was reading Colossians 4. You know the way you get to the end of Paul's letters? And I don't know about you, but when you get close to the end, I tend to accelerate. Because it's sort of like, say hello to him and say hello to her and give, give that one a holy kiss in the Lord. And, and you're just like, yeah, fly into the finish line. And I just felt the Holy Spirit saying, slow down, boy. And in Colossians 4, Paul writes about a guy called Epaphras. And I really felt conviction about this. Because he describes Epaphras like this. He says, he is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. And I just felt the Holy Spirit saying to me, you need to do that more for the church, for your family. Don't just pray simple little prayers. The simple prayers are fine, but don't, don't just pray the sort of your needs actually start picking people and wrestling on their behalf. Pick a name, pick someone in the church and wrestle on their behalf for 10 minutes someday that they may stand firm in this hurricane, whatever they are facing. Do we wrestle for one another or do we just pray a token prayer of God bless such and such a person? Do we actually just lay hold and cry out to God on behalf of those who maybe with the circumstances they're in find it difficult to cry out to God themselves? They need someone else to wrestle on their behalf. That's not to to sort of suggest that you should be prayerless or you shouldn't pray for for your own needs. But sometimes, and you all know it, you get to a position in life where it's just hard to do that. You're just under the pressure. You're you're in the in the dark. You're you're situation the circumstances around you are beating you up and you know what that's when you really need an epaphras someone else who will fight in prayer on your behalf that's something that we need to be doing over the next months wrestling wrestling contending is another bible word for this type of prayer contending for one another doing some warfare that your brothers and sisters will stand during the winter and stay firm during those storms. It's not, not, not hard right now to, to visualize a storm after yesterday morning. There was a, an article that came out quite early in the first lockdown in, in March. Um, I can't remember. I could, I could link it to you later. But it's got, about a guy called James Fraser who was a missionary to a pagan Chinese village, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in the foothills of the Himalayas. And in the winter, he could not get far enough <clears throat> up the mountains to visit the remote villages where he had converts, people who had turned from paganism to follow Jesus. Once the snowfall came, he could only visit the low-lying villages. He couldn't travel to those people. And he got really frustrated. And he got frustrated with God 
God, right now I need to be with these people. I need to help them. I need to disciple them. I need to encourage them, but I can't get at them. And then he writes, what would happen if I decided to spend the time that I would have spent gathering with these people, praying for them instead? I can't be with them as much as I want to be with them. And I'm going to now invest that time in praying and in wrestling on their behalf. And when the spring came, when the winter passed, he found that those who were up in the, in the mountains where he couldn't get to had accelerated and progressed considerably further in their following Jesus than the ones down in the lowlands that he could get to. Yeah? He found this was his experiment and the article was called The Great Coronavirus Experiment and basically this idea that if we would wrestle for one another rather than sitting about moaning that we can't see each other enough that there would be a wrestling. So one of the things that a remnant community does is prayer. Another thing is discipleship which can take many forms. Discipleship. I remember as we went through Ephesians a while ago, in Ephesians 4, I gave you a simple definition of discipleship, and I haven't, I haven't come across one that sort of rings my bell as much since this. Paul uses the phrase, learning Christ. He says to the people, you did not learn Christ that way. That idea of learning Christ that in these months, a remnant people will learn Jesus. Lifelong learning. We will learn Jesus. Whether we do that on our own or in community with a small group of a few people getting together and learning Jesus together. Growing and following him. And that's hard work. (laughs) Paul uses two metaphors for discipleship. One is military training. And one is athletic training. It's hard graft. You don't just sit in the armchair and order a pizza and then discipleship happens. That is not the way it works. So in in this darkness, the seed under the ground, what's happening in the seed? The life, the power, the energy, the the establishing, the what whatever happens biologically, I wish I knew. But that's all going on under the ground. I'm telling you, as a church, if a church wants to be that remnant seed, then prayer. And discipleship must be happening in the dark. Right now, we cannot sow very much. You can always sow in your family. You can always sow in your workplace. But in terms of actually engaging in in, in mission, that's difficult. And I I think we need to be delivered from the guilt that, that you can feel from the fact that you're not being as missional right now as you want to be. That's not your fault. That is not the fault of the church that we cannot be as missional as we want right now. In Hezekiah's day, the people couldn't be missional. They couldn't go out of the city and bring the presence of God to the world around them. They were stuck inside by the invading army round about them. Prayer and discipleship. Another verse, go go to Zephaniah, please. I'm nearly through. It's one of those messages as you're preparing it, you think to yourself, could it wait another week? Could it wait another week? And then you think, no, it just feels like I can't wait another week. It would have been better next week, but it is what it is. Zephaniah chapter 3. Now there's a verse in Zephaniah chapter 3 that you all know and you all love. It's not that one. It's 
Not the one about God being mighty to save and singing over you, rejoicing over you with singing. Fantastic verse, but it's not that one. Zephaniah, this is hilarious because it's hard to find Zephaniah, isn't it? He hides. (laughs) I am convinced that at night when I close my Bible, the 12 minor prophets change places during the night. And when I get up the next morning, they're not where they were the previous day. Hateful. Anyway, Zechariah 3.11. Sorry, Zephaniah. Some of you in here had a heart palpitation there. You're going to have to try and find another one. <laughs> Zephaniah 3.11. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me. I mean, look what God's going to remove. I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. I do think in my lifetime I have observed a degree of arrogance and pride and haughtiness in the church. Look at us and how amazing we are and how big and how bright and how awesome we can be. There's a haughtiness and God says, I'm going to remove that. I'm going to remove that haughtiness. I'm going to show it up for what it is. It's empty. And during the the darkness and during the winter, I'm going to remove that. And look at the next verse. But I will leave within you. This is the remnant that gets left, that remains. Yeah. Once the, the catastrophe passes and takes away the haughty and the proud and the arrogant, here's what remains. I will leave within you the meek, Now, that's a little understood word sometimes. People think it means weak because it rhymes with weak. That's pretty lame. It means teachable. A meek person will learn and will receive instruction. That is the meek. Always willing to hear and to learn and to obey the meek. I will leave within you the meek. The remnant are a meek, teachable, instructable people. I was just observing the other day with somebody that, that one of the, the problems in society and in the church is that people hate to be instructed. They hate to have anyone say to them, you should maybe do that slightly differently. <laughs> it just flipping wrecks some people. And it's very hard then to instruct or to correct or to suggest very gently, I I don't know that you're quite right on this. The meek, the remnant will be a meek people. The people that are going to emerge from the winter and be able to provide sustenance for the society around them are a meek people. They'll be humble, not be full of themselves. It doesn't mean you're constantly putting yourself down. That's not healthy. But they will be humble. It sounds awful lot like something somebody once said, blessed are the poor in spirit who know they need God. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. This is a faithful people who put their faith in God. I believe that whenever the Bible says trusting in the name of the Lord, it means trusting in his character. Because the names of God in the Bible reveal who he is. And the remnant, 
this seed in the dark right now, praying and learning Jesus and doing discipleship and wrestling for one another, this remnant will learn more and more what it means to trust in God and in God's character. Those are the marks, I believe, of of a remnant, according to Zephaniah. And look at that glorious picture. Eh? That's pleased at least two people. Um, A guy called Martin Thornton, who did not play for Liverpool, but was an Anglican uh, minister and writer, he created a sort of a sporting illustration for what it means to be the remnant, opposed to another term that he had, where he referred to some people as being nominal Christians. And nominal means in name only. Right? So you call yourself it, you associate yourself with it, but that's where it ends. And, and Thornton used the, the illustration, he says the remnants are the players on the pitch. Those who turn up to training and put in the hard graft day after day after day after day and show up. And there's a, there's a term that I love that, that I've heard a few times in the last few years. They've got skin in the game. <laughs> They've got skin in the game. It affects them more than anyone, the outcome and how things go. The remnant are those who are actually on the pitch doing the stuff. Nominal Christians are the spectators in the stands watching from a distance. They're there. They enjoy it. When it's going well, they celebrate. And when it's going badly, there's an awful lot of slobbering goes on about the players on the pitch. (laughs) Isn't it funny in in the world of sport how in, in a matter of minutes, seconds, we can turn from saying somebody's wonderful to like, can you believe he just did that? And that's what nominal Christianity does. It watches the remnant and sometimes celebrates with them and sometimes criticizes them. And then there's the world. The third category are those who are not even in the stadium at all. Those who are outside. Those who have not yet experienced the game, which is probably where the illustration falls, of following Jesus. The lost. Now, there are two groups there that, that then are the, the church or aspects of the church, the remnant or the nominal. Now, just a little word of warning. Don't put yourself in that middle category just because you've had a rough couple of weeks. All right? Don't allow guilt or shame to come in and start saying to you, you're nominal because you've had a rough few weeks and you've, things have got on top of you and circumstances around you are not what they would be and you're not where you want to be. Don't then walk out of here with the conclusion, I must be a nominal Christian, I'm a farce. No, that is not true. The nominal Christians are the ones who are just never fully involved. There are those who want to sort of tag along. They'd like to get to heaven when they die. They don't like the idea of hell. They're reasonably good people but they're not crying out to God to renew the church and revive the nation. That's what the remnant are doing. The nominal like a wee bit about Jesus because Jesus will get them into heaven and keep them out of hell, but they're not obsessed with him. He doesn't just blow their mind with how incredible he is. They don't want to follow him and become like him. They just want to sort of tag along at a distance and and grab a few benefits if they can. 
So please do not misunderstand and put yourself into a category that you're not in. (laughs) It's been said about some areas within the church that they won't even exist in a couple of decades if the current trends go on. I'm not going to name, but one large denomination, it has been predicted that in Scotland in about 15 years, it will not even exist because it's just on a steady decline away from passion and away from fire and away from being a remnant. They were birthed as a remnant. They were birthed as a remnant people in fire and in passion a couple of hundred years ago. But it's now been said by, by people who study the, the church that, that they won't even exist. Just quietly, doors will close all over the place. People won't turn to paganism. They won't convert from Christianity to some other thing. They'll just gradually fade away into insignificance. I don't want the church to do that in the next six months. I want the church to rise significant. <laughs> and to rise and offer something to the community around them. Jesus said that unless the seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. Unless we'll go through that period in the dark, in the cold, in the wet, under the ground, praying, discipleship, wrestling, then we'll just be one seed. And Jesus wants multiplication to produce many seeds. So the question is, are you in the remnant? Do you want to be in the remnant? (laughs) Yeah? Because there is going to be something. And and next week we're going to look at what these seeds grow into. They don't grow into daisies or dandelions or annuals. Those little plants that look wonderful and sparkly for one year and they're gone. We're not talking about growing annuals here. Okay? We're talking about growing something that is the most commonly mentioned living organism in the Bible after the living God and human beings. And we're talking about trees. I'm going to talk about trees next week because these seeds, when they, when they come forth from the ground, after a lot of that hard work is done putting down that tap root, have you ever noticed even how the tiniest little sapling you're maybe walking along the road and you see this, this tiny wee thing growing on the side of the road and you think, oh, I'll maybe take that home and pot it up and you go to pull it out of the ground and it's a stubborn wee so-and-so. Like it is just stuck in there like a tick and won't come out because the hard work was done in the dark before you even saw the shoots come up. Will you be in this remnant? Amen. Come on ahead, bud.